In a land that time forgot, nothing stands still. Power sets the rules, but magic bends them. Twin suns cast shadows on a fallen empire, and battles rage under the stars. From the director of the four-hour workweek comes a tale of adventure, intrigue, and ancient mysteries. The legend of Cock Punch! In the Eightfold Arena, anything can happen, and everything can change. Last night was cold and wet, and I seem to have caught a cold. But no matter, as the work keeps the spirit warm. Let us continue with the diary entry of Tyrolean Larkspur, which includes drawings that I found at cockpunch.com slash scrolls. My father handed over my pass. After a few minutes of cross-checking, the guard handed it directly back to me. Tyrolean Luxpur, you may pass. See you on the other side, kid. Be safe and remember that Quintus can help you. My dad hid his worry well. This is as far as his guardian pass could take him. Will do, Dad. I love you. I love you too, Ty. See you before sundown. I'll be right here. And with that, the guard stepped aside and let me pass. The suns were high enough now to cast a large shadow under the gateway, and I was temporarily blinded by darkness before emerging on the other side. I was not at all prepared for what I saw. My mule whinnied and sidestepped as we entered the light. I put my forearm across my face to shield my eyes, confused by what looked like church bells above me. I reined in Harry. I'd given him that name the day before, and we stopped. No bell tolls. All I heard was the traveller behind me. Get out of the way, kid. I was frozen. It took me a few seconds to realise what was swinging ten feet over my head. Bodies. I'd totally forgotten about the gallows greeters. When we'd ridden from House Hime, my father had described the city, its landmarks, things to avoid, and much more. But no matter how I tried, it was too much to remember. In my excitement, it was all like footnotes to a dream. Now things were very real. No one entering the city could miss the warning. Follow our rules, or this could be you. Just within the entrance gates, north, east, south, and west, criminals were hung. The gallows greeters. The run-of-the-mill criminals hung from rope around their necks, and the worst hung from large hooks that were pressed through their backs. Both men I saw got the rope, and their faces were shrouded by black sacks. It made me sick. I spurred Harry... We trotted under, and I followed my dad's directions. We took a direct line, passing buildings, people in odd outfits, street stands, and an endless torrent of sellers carrying their goods. 
My dad had drawn the layout of the city several times on our journey, mostly on the sand of stream banks, and he'd given me a map on rawhide to keep with me. From the farthest edges of the outer lands, the walls of the city make it look like an enormous circular coliseum. It towers over everything else. But if you were a red hawk flying far above the city, my father had explained, it would look almost like a grapefruit cut in half, with twelve segments fanning out from the centre. In the very middle is the eightfold arena, where the great games take place. The arena looks like a smaller coliseum set within the city walls. The businesses that directly surround the arena, they're attached to its exterior but have passageways to the interior, represent the most prized real estate in the city. This is the shell. The circular avenue surrounding the shell is lined with large trees and known as Gossamer Boulevard. The largest avenues in the city by far are Gossamer Boulevard and those leading from the four gates to the shell. It takes a few minutes to orient yourself in the city, but once you get it, it's easy. Imagine that Northgate Avenue, usually called North Avenue, is 12 o'clock on a clock face. East Avenue is then 3 o'clock. South Avenue, 6 o'clock. And West Avenue, 9 o'clock. There are straight avenues that shoot out from the shell at each hour. So 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, and so on. These are the lines that make the segments of the grapefruit, if you're the Red Hawk. Hopefully that makes some sense. Next, you have the streets. These are circles that move out from the shell at regular intervals, like the ripples in a pond after you drop a pebble. There are seven streets, and each has a letter. The letters spell the last name of the most recent winner of the great games. There are rules for strange or short names, but on my visit it was simple. Varolis. Yes, that Varolis, the family that seems unbeatable. So, you have the clock face of 1 to 12 o'clock for avenues, then you have the circular streets moving out from the arena. Gossamer Boulevard, then V-A-R-O-L-I and S. I'm leaving out all of the alleys, catwalks and so on. But those are the basics. Last, you have the outer edge of businesses attached to the wall of the city. This is called the Orbit, and I don't know anything about it. My father forbade me from visiting it. This is all a lot, but becomes second nature quickly. For instance, I passed a fruit cellar about halfway from the eastern gate to the shell. A rough address for that, but certainly good enough for someone to find it, would be 3-O. O is in the middle of Varolis. My father told me the best fiddle maker has a shop near North Avenue and Gossamer. So that would be 12G. The oldest structure in the city is an enormous church, just inside the south gate at 6S. But today's trip didn't include fiddles or churches. Straight to the shell and follow it left were my father's instructions. Eyes ahead one hand on the reins and the other hand on the saddlebags. That's exactly what I did. 
When I dead-ended into the arena, I curved left, and each storefront lit up my imagination. These were the places I'd only heard of around the fire at night or from boys at school. Before I knew it, I'd arrived. Sitting between six and seven on the shell, it rose at least six or seven floors. It was gigantic. The Pronking Parlour. The most famous tavern in the realm was the stuff of legend. I tied Harry up on a rail next to horses of types I'd never seen. I paid the nearby attendant to watch my things, and I walked off to join the queue. Roughly two hours later, I was barely close enough to see the door. Things moved slowly, and it seemed that at least half of the people were turned away. A huge Kavothian behind me shuffled and snorted impatiently. I'd never met a Kavothian before, and his dialect was hard to understand through his helmet. He wore heavy torso armour that creaked as he moved. Eventually, the line ended about fifteen feet in front of me, where there was a velvet rope. Ten feet beyond that, a door bouncer waved people forward one at a time. They clipped the rope behind themselves as they passed. This was to prevent group brawls, explained the cleric in front of me, who had donut frosting on his chin and laughed nervously. A few minutes later, the cleric passed and got in. I was beckoned forward and approached. I came to stand before the bouncer, another Kavothian who wore light leather on top of civilian clothing. He calmly looked me over, but before he could speak, his eyes flicked up and locked on something. That's when I was hit by a wagon. At least that's how it felt, and I landed on my side in the dirt. I was in line before that stupid brat. It was the Kavothian who'd been standing behind me. He pulled up one sleeve. Here's my mark. Let me in. One at a time, Kylo. You know the rules, the bouncer said evenly. He was a head shorter than the other and showed not a trace of agitation. Now go back to the rope and wait your turn. It is my turn. Listen, I'm a captain and I'm done waiting. You should know. This is as far as he got. Before the angry mountain could finish, I heard the steam release in the bouncer's gauntlet. He kicked out the front foot of the captain, and, as the man fell face first, hit him with an uppercut so hard that the heavily armoured body flew across the street into a thick brick wall. The sound was deafening. It happened so quickly that the fanning spray of blood lingered high in the air, catching the sun like rain. A few droplets fell on my sleeve. Okay, kid. The bouncer helped me back to my feet, then turned to the crowd in line, who were dead silent. I hate rude behavior in a man. I won't tolerate it. He turned back to me. You're up. Mark or no mead, he said quietly, as if nothing had happened. I, I'm very sorry, sir, but I haven't yet made the pilgrimage. My father brought me to the city with his guardian pass, and he told me to come straight here and ask for Quintus. I raced to get all the words out. Quintus, eh? Quintus doesn't have many friends, but thousands of them seem to show up in this line. My name is Tyrolean, sir. His eyes went wide, and he broke into a laugh. Ty! Good 
God, it is you. Last time I saw you, you were in a cradle. Now you're covered in dust and horse piss. Come with me before you get yourself into more trouble. He stepped aside, and, with a hand on my back, ushered me into a huge coat room. There were at least a dozen more security eyeing me curiously. I assume you have no weapons, but if you had, you'd check them here. Max, could you please take care of the door? I have some business for Quintus. And there's another fool taking a nap at the brick wall. So call the peacekeepers. The rest should behave for a while. Yes, sir. Dorian. Dorian put one arm around me and we passed through the antechamber. Well, welcome to the prunking parlor, young man. Watch your ass and watch your wallet. We had to put in that brick wall across the street because we got sick of paying for repairing storefronts. This place is a magnet for idiots. Dorian swept his gauntlet to one side and opened a tall red curtain. We stepped inside and sound assaulted my senses. Ty, this is the biggest floor. It has the loudest music, the most people and the hardest booze. If troublemakers are going to make trouble, we want them to do it here. It makes dealing with them a lot easier. Dorian's arm made me feel like I was wrapped by one of the monster snakes of the Black Barons, even though he applied no pressure. He was a giant, of course, but his strength seemed gianter. It's hard to put into words, but his unusual power radiated. The crowd parted as we moved forward, and every bouncer stiffened and stood up straight as they noticed him. The space was enormous, much larger than you would expect from the outside, and musicians played on at least three raised platforms. Orbs of illumination danced along the ceiling, casting purple, green, and turquoise on the bustle below. Booths, tables, smoke, clamor, and people of every sort filled the cavernous expanse, making it hard for me to focus on anything in the chaos. There was only one thing that stood apart. What's that red star? I asked. Ah, that, Dorian grinned. That, my dear boy, is a reminder. It's not a star, but it is a beauty, isn't it? He took me towards it. The entire far wall was a spectacular bar. The hardwood counter stretched at least fifty feet across, and the bottles behind the bartenders shone on backlit shelves that stretched to the ceiling. Dead center was what had grabbed my eye. There was a perfect red circle, perhaps five feet tall, that sat right above the bartenders' heads. It looked like a blood moon, and glowing in the very middle was the star I'd mentioned. Dorian stopped a few steps outside of the crowd at the bar. He pointed to the star, which no longer looked like a star. I noticed that its points were meticulously curved, making it look like the rotary hose my father used back home. It pulsed a ruby red that made me think of fireflies in summer. This is a flying glaive, and a very special one. Her name is Sapphira. For most of his life, Quintus carried her. He cared for her, and she cared for him. Now they're both happily retired. But anyone who walks through the curtain gets a wink from Sapphira, a reminder of who runs this place. I've only seen Quintus take her down once or twice, 
and her magic will only dance with him. But it's quite something to behold. And if anyone is stupid enough to upset him that much, well, they don't end up as lucky as our big friend outside. He gave Sapphira a subtle salute. Speaking of the old bastard, shall we go see him? His arms steered me around, past more security and up a flight of stairs. We moved more quickly now. This is the speakeasy, a more relaxed spot for some of our VIP regulars. The bartenders nodded at him, and we continued up the stairs to the third floor. And this is our Bislin parlor. Really, it's the Bislin parlor. Most of the bigwigs here come to try their luck. Do you know how to play? No, my father forbids gambling. Good, terrible habit. But if you're going to do it, here's the trick. If you own the house, you always win. The players play against the other players, not us. We just charge a door fee and take a rake. If you want to hunt whales on our property... Whales? I interrupted, a little more loudly than intended. Well-dressed men at the tables turned and looked at us with annoyance. Their spectacles and fingernails were the cleanest I'd ever seen. They all paused, a few coughed, and they returned to their games. Dorian lowered his voice to a whisper. That's what your father might call the practice disdain of the highborn. Those are whales. Rich bastards who love losing money as much as we love taking it. If you want to play big, you play in our Bislin parlor. And if you want to play in our parlor, you pay a premium. Suddenly, a barred owl flew across the room. It deftly picked up a yellow drink from the bar and returned to a table, placing the crystal glass in its owner's hand. It made no sound. Familiars, I said in a hushed voice. I could barely contain myself. Now that I'd seen the owl, I noticed a cat, a raven and other creatures perched on the shoulders of some players. Yep, this is the only floor where we allow them. Long story, but those are the rules. So far, no trouble, and that's part of the reason we can charge a premium. The door fee is high, and we take ten percent of the pot. That's what I mean by the rake. Outstanding business. As you probably know, there is only one Bislin parlor allowed per quadrant. Twelve to three is one quadrant, three to six, six to nine, that's us, and nine to twelve. The licenses are very, very expensive, and we don't have a monopoly. But we don't have much competition, either. And the other three undercut us on price, but we have something they don't. Grade A whale meat, I offered... Dorian burst out laughing, and a nearby raven spooked, almost flying into a window. Good lord, let me get you out of here. If I don't bore you to death first, your father will kill me. He walked to the bar and unlocked a gate that allowed us to walk behind it. He then began climbing a narrow spiral staircase and indicated for me to follow. It reflected light, as if made of copper and it had joints hidden behind ornate designs. Amber marbles were woven into the metalwork. This is retractable. It can be pulled up to the next floor. Quintus made it hard for fat boys like me to climb on purpose. I hate this thing. He made slow progress, 
as he had to stoop his head and turn his broad shoulders sideways while taking small steps. Once to the top and in a fire of some type, Dorian stretched his back for a minute, cursing under his breath. Once done, he knocked at a pattern on a large wooden door. The door was reinforced with metal bands at the top and bottom. At head height was mounted a large boomerang, the crest of House Hime. I heard a few gears turning, and the door swung outward. Look what the catch dragged in. Ty, you look a mess. Before me stood Quintus, smoking a cigar and smiling. His blue-tipped mohawk was wreathed in smoke, and his eyes seemed amused. I stared at his golden beak, even though my father had told me not to. This old thing... He pointed at his face and chuckled. I cast my eyes to the floor, not sure of what to do. It might be pretty, but it ain't cheap. Not worth the squeeze, right, Dorian? Dorian laughed. Not worth the squeeze. And on that note, I leave you fine gents to it and squeeze my goddamn birthing hips down your stupid ladder. I'm supposed to run security here or something. Ty... It's been a pleasure. Boss, I'll see you later. He nodded his head to both of us, patted me on the shoulder and left. I followed Quintus into his office, and the door automatically shut behind us. The space was huge, and the walls were covered with books upon books, interspersed with maps, antiques, and other strange objects. He sat down behind a thick desk the size of a dining table and motioned for me to sit down across from him. How's your dad? he asked. Two servers came out of a side entrance and platters of meats, steaming vegetables and exotic delicacies were laid before us. I'd never seen such a feast. The seats were plush and covered in red leather. They seemed to swallow me. He's doing well, thanks. Sometimes hard to read, right? Quintus said and continued. He hasn't changed much, and I, for one, think that's a good thing. He's a rare breed. Please give him my best. He loves you a lot, you know. We've been exchanging letters for months about the trip. He took a long drag on his cigar and tapped the end into an ivory ashtray. But you must be starving, if I know your old man at all, he probably gave you a handful of biscuit crumbs for breakfast. Dig in while it's hot. We ate, and Quintus asked me questions. What did I think of the FTZ so far? Is there anything I would improve at the pronking parlor? What were my dreams? What was I afraid of? What did I notice in the outer lands? What exactly did the Hakura look like who'd approached us? I had no idea how he knew. It went on and on. No adult had ever asked me so many questions. At the end of the meal, he wiped his face with a cloth napkin and coughed as if to clear his throat. So, you ready? I didn't understand. Uh, I think I missed something, Mr. Quintus. Ready for what? Quintus stood up. First, we burn off some of these calories. He reached below the tabletop and pulled out two double-sided axes. 
They were thin and had finely braided suede handles. The metal was nearly white and perfectly unblemished. He handed one to me. Ever thrown one of these? No, I haven't. My dad won't even let me touch our cooking knives. I throw a lot of sticks with him when we hunt rabbits, but that's it. Well, today's your lucky day, then. See that map of Varlada at the back of the room? He pointed far behind where he'd been seated. Step back to the other side and let's see if you can stick it. The map was the size of a small wagon wheel. Once I was standing where he'd asked, it looked no bigger than a quail egg. Mr. Quintus, I think I'll miss. We'll see about that and stop the Mr. Quintus stuff. Makes me feel old. I'll count down and you throw on one, okay? I nodded automatically and wished I hadn't. Here we go. Ready, set, five, four, three, two, one. I didn't hear my release, but we both heard the impact. A tall blue vase shattered into dozens of pieces, which flew everywhere. The axe was stuck into a shelf about two feet to the bottom right of the map. When the fragments finally stopped skipping across the floor, Quintus turned from looking at the shelf back to me. He slapped his leg. Well, goddamn, you were right. I'm so sorry, sir. I... He cut me off with a wave of the hand. Nothing to be sorry about, Ty. At least not yet. You get another shot. And this time you get a tip for a trade. You have a really good arm, but you're throwing the axe like a wackadoodle. If you're hunting rabbits, you throw the stick low and parallel to the ground, right? Yes, sir. You're looking to cover the widest area to kill or cripple your dinner, which could run left or right. That makes sense. But in this case, you want to keep the blades vertical, more accurate. Step with your lead foot in the direction of the throw and keep your thumb on the spine of the handle until the release. These axes are light for a reason. They're more like razors than wedges. Last, don't hook your own back at the end of the draw. That'll ruin your day. Bend your elbow to 90 degrees and no further. Got it? I nodded. Good. Now the trade. Actually, it's more of a bet. Your dad has a very high opinion of you, and he said you could hit a maple leaf from this distance. He was willing to bet a month of his own wages. My eyes bulged, and my heart sank. Quintus continued. So on this turn, you must hit the teeny-tiny FTZ on that map, or your dad loses a lot of his coins. I imagine that would make life harder for him and less pleasant for you. If you win, I double his wages. That's the deal. Any questions? My head began to throb, and my vision closed in. Dad wasn't a gambler. Why would he make such a foolish bet? And even if he had, why wouldn't he tell me in advance? It made no sense, and I began to panic. Ty... I'll take that as a no, but I do have good news. I'm feeling generous today. I'll give you two tries. He retrieved the first axe and carried both of them over to me. 
Quintus handed me one and placed the other on the floor. You know the drill. I'll count down and you throw on one. Good to go? Do I have a choice? Not really. Sorry, Ty. Here we go. Ready, set. I took a deep breath and let out a long, slow exhale. In my mind, I repeated FTZ, FTZ, FTZ. Five. The suede handle in my fingers felt like the inside of a rabbit pelt. My mind was floating, hunting in the background, but I didn't feel distracted. The music downstairs receded. Four. The headache disappeared, and I felt the urge to yawn. I slowly lifted my arm up and back. The weight of the axe arched overhead and behind me. In my mind's eye, I saw the flash of a beautiful fall morning and heard my father's voice as a whisper. Aim small, miss small. Three. A line from my ribs to my elbows stretched taut and I changed direction. Two. The acceleration came, but I felt like a puppet with someone else pulling the strings. There was no plan, no strain. I stepped, and the edge of my heel kissed the floor. One. I rolled forward, planted my weight, and my hand came straight down in front of me. The white steel was airborne. It all happened in slow motion, until I practically blacked out. Without thinking... I had rolled the second axe's handle onto my foot and kicked it up to my weaker hand. By the time I realized what I was doing, it was already gone. There's a gap in my memory, but I clearly remember Quintus's face as I rocked back onto my rear foot and things resumed at normal speed. His mouth was hanging open. I glanced to the wall. The axe blades appeared so close that they were touching and the handles were at exactly the same angle, pointing downward about 30 degrees. Both were perfectly in the FTZ. Quintus scratched his temple and smiled. Well, goddamn, Ty, if I'd known you were a natural-born killer, I would have had you handcuffed before you came in here. He walked around his desk, and I owe you something. But since you seem to have strange powers, I want you to try something first. Raise your right hand and say, Abracadabra, I command thee. Confused, I did as he said and sheepishly repeated, Abracadabra, I command thee. In a split second, bars fell over the windows. A metal wall dropped in front of the entrance. A loud clanking caused me to cover my ears, and I leapt back against the wall. The map, and, in fact, the entire section of the wall behind the map, had swung inward. Beyond it was a stone passageway, flickering in torchlight. Quintus's laughter filled the room, and he waved me over to where he stood. He pointed down to one of his feet, which stood on a pedal. It's a fun trick but the trick isn't what you get for winning. And the whole thing with your dad's wages was a lie, by the way. I'll explain that later. He grabbed a brown satchel with brass clasps from a cabinet, threw it over his shoulder, 
and took a few steps into the passageway. He turned back with a grin. Come on, kid. Let me show you the great games. The adventure of Tyrolean continues in the next scroll.